there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be a college counselor, either helping high schoolers to get into the college of their dreams or helping to recruit students to your college as a college admissions counselor, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest won Counselor of the Year in 2017 at CollegeWise, the largest college admissions counseling organization in the U.S., and she also worked as an admissions counselor at Mills College in California, so she's seen both sides of the process. But before I introduce you to Casey Near, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my high school and college counseling Cortada lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Casey Near, the Executive Director of Counseling at CollegeWise. With over 60 admissions experts and 40 testing and curriculum tutors, CollegeWise is out to change the way that families approach the college admissions process. As Executive Director of Counseling, Casey's responsible for managing and overseeing all CollegeWise counselors around the world. And she's also responsible for day-to-day -day operations, as well as the caliber and quality of counseling and customer experience. Prior to joining CollegeWise, and she's worked there on two occasions, Casey was an admissions counselor at Mills College, a private liberal arts and sciences women's college in Oakland, California. Casey, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? Yes, I have now officially finished my second cup of pour over coffee this morning. So I think I'm somewhere between caffeinated and jittery at this point. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I know from reading your resume that one of your hobbies, which I absolutely love and share, is finding the best coffee everywhere. And I also know that you have traveled all over the world. So mm -hmm. Casey Near, no pressure. <laughs> But where do you think they've got the best coffee? Oh, gosh, that is going to get me in a little bit of trouble for my answer. So I'm from the Bay Area, and one would think I would feel pressured, and I do, to say <laughs> San Francisco as the answer. But I have to say the consistently best coffee shop to coffee shop, you know, trying out every type of place is Wellington, New Zealand, I would say. So really? I think New Zealand has the best cappuccinos I've had in a very long time. So that would be my vote. And I apologize to <laughs> all of my, my home in the Bay Area. <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to say in my case, the best coffee experience that I've ever had is in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Mmm, strong coffee. 
oh my goodness. And you can't sit down in this little coffee shop and I can't remember the name. I Mm -hmm. could find it if I need to. But you stand up with the little standing tables around there and the coffee shop itself has a big lion's head Mm -hmm. behind the counter. So Mm -hmm. anybody out there in our listening world who happens to have visited Addis Ababa or may live there would know this coffee shop because it's super famous. Best coffee I've ever had. Wow. I love it. Okay. Now now I'm on a hunt for the Lionhead coffee shop. (laughs) Well, if you do go to Addis, let me know and I'll get you the name. Okay. (laughs) Sounds like a plan. So we should let our listeners know, Casey, that we're doing this interview on the very last day of March, 2020. And needless to say, pretty much the entire U.S., let alone many other countries around the world, is sheltering at home because of the coronavirus. You are up in Maine. Is that right? What city are you in? I'm in Portland, Maine, the metropolis of Maine. (laughs) And I'd have to imagine that even in the metropolis of Portland, Maine, where you are not living on top of one another as people are in places like New York City and LA, that there's definitely some changes, some changes that you're experiencing. How are you holding up? You know, I'm doing I'm doing okay. And I think everybody is very grateful for the people on the front lines and the healthcare field and where there are people who have it much harder than most right now financially or just because of their job. So I think I'm definitely very grateful for being safe and healthy, warm, safe and dry. And in terms of my work, I already worked remotely and online. So that hasn't been disrupted in terms of my day to day. But certainly the landscape of education, as with pretty much every industry has been. So it's, it's certainly no two days are the same right now. Yes. So no doubt the coronavirus has affected your business at CollegeWise. Mm-hmm where you usually counsel students and families in person. But I also know that you offer counseling virtually. So how have you adapted? What's happening right now? Yeah, I think mechanically, that was frankly probably the easiest and easier for us, of course, than schools who are having to shift entire classrooms online. But we were able to flip a switch pretty quickly since, like you said, we already had online counselors to doing Zoom and online meetings for all of our families. I think what's been disrupted are are all of the pieces surrounding our counseling work, which is the decisions that colleges have had to make and the decisions that high schools have had to make and the decisions test prep agencies and testing agencies have had to make. And so the kind of cluster of those three and the changes they've had to adapt to specifically with most test dates have been closed or postponed of late. And so we're looking at a world where students haven't been able to take a standardized test, an SAT or an ACT. Most kids are potentially going to be pass-fail for their junior year and wondering how that might impact their application spring dance recitals and debate tournaments and softball tournaments have all been canceled. How might that impact, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of new questions swirling, but so much of our work has always been focused on what can you control and what can't you? And now we're just adding the what has changed and what hasn't changed framework. And I think that has always stayed the same for us is kind of adding a level of zen to a little bit of this right now. I can totally understand that. Yeah. So before we get into how you found yourself in this field, Casey, I'd love for us to learn more about what the executive director of counseling at CollegeWise does 
during normal times. Yes, that's a good caveat. During not right now. I think a couple of different things. So I would say that one, I still do counsel a caseload of students. So my evenings are usually spent after school and evenings when kids are traditionally out of school. I'm with students in meetings in terms of the evenings during the weekdays. And in the mornings and the midday, I do manage a team of we call managing counselors who then manage other counselors. So I'll be doing check-ins with them. But I think more broadly, I see my role as responsible for the caliber of our counseling work, both internal with our enrolled families and external with the content that we put out, whether it's on our blog or our website or on webinars. So kind of making sure I'm staying abreast of the changes happening. So I spend a lot of time reading things that are updated each day in terms of college decisions and writing a lot of things to our counselors and to our families to make sure everybody is also informed about counseling best practices. So a little bit of different things and a lot of managing meetings in between to make sure we really, really focus on good and present managing as a remote company. We're definitely not an over meeting. We don't do meetings if you don't need them, but we really do focused meetings when necessary. So I do have meetings and then check-ins throughout the day as well. That's interesting that you described CollegeWise as a remote company. What do you mean by that? I think in the sense for me, my entire team that I manage is remote to me. I only see them through my Zoom computer screen. And so I see that as remote work. And most of our, well, I would say a good portion of our counseling happens in some way remotely. A lot of our students, even if they live down the street from the offices, will say, well, it's easier to hop online because I need to squeeze this in between dance practice and homework later. So a lot of our work kind of dances between the in-person and the remote. But in terms of the professional and my peers and colleagues, I only interact with them remotely. So I really think about how can we make and celebrate their work and make it more visible. That's something I'm constantly thinking about as a remote manager in particular. On the CollegeWise website, it says that there are over 60 admissions experts Mm -hmm. and 40 testing and curriculum tutors. Mm -hmm. Do you oversee all of these folks or just the admissions experts? Good question. I oversee just the admissions and counseling folks. So I oversee our counseling division and my good friend and colleague, uh, Rebecca Putter, she oversees our testing college-wise academic services division. So that's the tutors and the test prep and the curriculum enhancement, those folks. So we kind of wear two hats, but we, we obviously overlap a lot. Okay, wonderful. So could you take us into a typical day for you, Casey, not during the coronavirus outbreak, but if we were a fly on the wall in your home in Portland, Maine, what would we be seeing and hearing you do? Oh, gosh, a lot of talking to myself, embarrassingly. But otherwise, I think, you know, most days I really try as best I can. And I've gotten better at this over the years with wearing increasingly different types of hats and having to switch between very different types of work is trying to contain my project and deep work time. So I try and do in the mornings about maybe half an hour of answering emails and then pushing that aside so I can focus on one really important project or thing that I need to get done that day. And it usually involves writing in some capacity, either internally or externally. I try not to check Slack and email during that time. And then I shift to 
one-on-one meetings with either one or two of the folks that I manage. And then in the afternoons, usually I start student meetings around three or four until about seven most nights. I do work with students in different time zones, so it can usually go later than that. Or if I'm working with kids in Asia or further away, I'll have meetings in the morning. But typically that's on my best days. I get some deep work. I get some one-on-one time with my colleagues and I have some students. That's a typical day for me. It's interesting that you use the words deep work. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Have you read Dr. Cal Cal Newport's book? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I interviewed him on Time for Coffee and actually highly, highly recommend his book, Deep Work. It's all about how to bring more focus Mm -hmm. so that you can operate in this era where knowledge workers are at a premium. Your ability to not be checking your phone or your social media, whatever's apps during the day and turn off notifications, whatnot. Highly, highly recommend that. Yes, we definitely worship at the altar of Cal Newport and uh, one of the other books, and I'll probably botch the title, but it doesn't have to be crazy at work, which is written by the founders of Basecamp. Those are two of our big kind of things that we we love and follow at CollegeWise. And Kevin McMullen, who I know you interviewed, is a big proponent of both Cal Newport and Jason Freed, who's one of the founders of Basecamp in, in terms of their management styles. But it's definitely something I think I constantly think about both for the people whom I manage and my students is the best thing I can give them. And frankly, any of us can give is my attention. And I think it can be very, very hard working remotely to stay focused when we all have 27 monitors and alerts and things. But I really, really focus on when I'm in a meeting, everything else is closed. No Slack open, no email. I am really, really listening actively and paying attention. And that's been a big adjustment or shift I've I've really had to focus on in the last few years as a virtual worker. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> yeah. As I said in the introduction, you won Counselor of the Year at College Wise <laughs> in 2017. And you actually won, I guess it was described as second year Counselor of the Year <laughs> at College Wise in 2015 as well. <laughs> what makes a great counselor, Casey? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm just going to sound very full of myself, I think, when I start to go into the description. But I think now I get to sit where I get to help decide who wins this award. So I think I'll frame it around what's gone into the thought process of late. But I think at base level, I think we always talk about it has to be somebody where we can put any type of kid with any type of pain point or experience or family situation, and that counselor will know what to do. And they need very little guidance, whatever their needs are. I think that's step one. I think step two, we call within CollegeWise kind of our group, the hive, which is our hive of counselors and tutors and everybody here. And a really excellent counselor is constantly looking for ways to teach and to be taught. I think some of our best counselors and the people I look up to the most, they're constantly out there absorbing new information. They're voracious and they never kind of sit back and go, well, I won this award or I've been here for 10 years or I've seen it all. They're very aware that things change and they need to be learning. So I think those are probably the biggest, biggest qualities I look for when I want to celebrate a counselor. And I know from the Espresso Shots interview that we did. And by the way, if our listeners want to learn how to break into this industry, check out show notes to see if Casey's Espresso Shots interview has already dropped. But you flagged 
a couple of qualities that you said are super important in terms of the skills that counselors should have. The first Mm -hmm. one you said was the ability to read the room. Yeah. Yeah. I think being astute with families and knowing when is the time and place to offer up advice and when is the time and place to listen and when sometimes what people most need is clear direction and when sometimes people need a series of questions for them to find that direction. I think all of those are crossroads. All of our counselors have to sit in and the best know exactly which direction to go in a given moment. So I think that's definitely step one. What does a counselor at CollegeWise do? And what is the process that you use, Casey, to help high schoolers and their parents make it through the application experience, in your words, with joy, sanity, and perspective? (laughs) Yes. So our counselors work with students at varying timestamps, I guess, throughout high school. Some of our families come to us early in high school with a lot of questions about course selection for their students and what makes most sense for their student given their goals. Some of our families are curious about summer choices. So it it depends on when they enroll. But by and large, they're kind of curious and nervous about how and what will be impacted down the line. So our counselors work with them to pick out those courses to help guide them with maybe making decisions around summer plans or activities they may want to drop. We actually encourage our kids to drop things. That is okay to pursue their curiosities. And then eventually we help them build a college list that reflects their families and their needs and wants and priorities. And then eventually fill out those applications and help kids answer everything authentically and in a way that just sounds like them. So we help them with that part. And then obviously, right now we're in the midst of this, but decision phase of navigating, deciding which school is best for them. So kind of that whole longitudinal process. Gotcha. So I asked you what makes a great counselor. Now I'd love to know what makes this a great career to pursue? Hmm. Gosh, I think for anybody who just is fascinated by teenagers, and I say that knowing my father was a teacher of high school juniors, and he always looked at teachers of preschool students like they were actual saints. (laughs) And I have the same admiration for people who can handle young kids. And I recognize when I say people who love working with teenagers, they're probably looking at me like we're the crazy ones. So I will say you have to love teenagers and be fascinated by how they tick and what makes them tick. So I think that's probably one of the best parts is that you are on the front lines a little bit of just the teen experience. And you're invited into people's, you know, these are oftentimes really personal conversations of parents having differing feelings than a kid and parents eventually maybe just really being proud of their kid as they see them start to transform and open up and shine and take ownership of the next chapter of their lives. So I think those kind of intimate and interesting moments that you get to witness and experience and guide families through, our best counselors just really relish in those moments. Mm. What about you? What Mm -hmm. attracted you to this field? The honest answer is it was first the people. I was at a, at a conference and I was actually endearingly heckled from the audience by one of the college wise early counselors who very, very endearingly made a joke and we chatted afterward. And she was just, she is, she still is a friend and a colleague here. She's just funny and self-deprecating and smart. And I felt like, well, I want to work with people like her. And so that was honestly what first drew me in. I hadn't originally considered working in college counseling or independent college counseling, but it was the people that drew me to college-wise. And then I fell in love with the work, honestly, once I got here. Nice. 
So before I ask you what it was like to work as a college admissions counselor, Mm -hmm. which you did for, I guess it was a little under two years, Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you about a rather unusual but super brave and exciting thing you did for Mm -hmm. a year. And it was in 2016. You'd mm-hmm. been working at CollegeWise the first time for about mm-hmm. three years. And you left. You quit your job. No. <laughs> Can you share with our listeners what you did mm-hmm. and what that experience was like for you? Of course. It was the best decision I ever made. And one of the, I, and I say hardest, very deeply caveated, knowing that I had a lot of privileges that enabled and empowered me to make that choice, which is that I quit my job. I sold everything that I owned. I packed it into a suitcase and I left everything with my very, very wonderful mother who was storing both my things and my cat who I lovingly abandoned with her. And I went backpacking. So I had a bit of my own eat, pray, love experience. And I used the program WorkAway, which is a work exchange. So you can work in exchange for room and board around the world. So I did that all over. And I wrote as I worked. So I had a little bit of money coming in on varying blogs and wrote about my experiences, but mostly just did a lot of... I worked in hostels. I cleaned hostel showers. I cooked in inns in the south of France. I chopped vegetables in northern Italy. I did a lot of random odd jobs, but it was an experience I had long needed and, or I guess should say wanted. I hadn't studied abroad in college and always had wanted to scratch that itch. And I was about to turn 30 and felt like, well this is the time. And I loved my job. And I also felt like I needed to leave it. And that was a weird crossroads to stand in. And you went by yourself. Yeah. Yep. I did start with a partner, but I did pivot about halfway through and then it was just me. So there was a lot of life stuff happening, but it was really, really empowering. And I really loved and I miss traveling on my own, actually. I encourage any young women listening to please, please consider it and that there are far more other women out there doing it than you often realize. I ran into many, many women at either their quarter life, midlife or later life crisis, (laughs) doing similar things from all over the world. And that was pretty interesting to see. So I asked you at the beginning if you had a favorite coffee. What about a favorite country? Oh, gosh. I mean, I did mention New Zealand at the beginning, and my now husband also lived there for two years. So that has a soft spot for me. But favorite city, I would say, has been Amsterdam. I've gone there in varying seasons, and it just continues to be so beautiful and so charming and very walkable. So I think that's probably one of my favorites and most I want to return to pretty much constantly. Love it. And for those of you who've never been to Amsterdam, one of the hidden secrets, I guess, is the fact that it is full of these beautiful canals. So it's mm-hmm. like Venice, yes. Italy. You can go all over the place on these longboats. Mm-hmm underneath beautiful bridges. And I couldn't agree more. It is such a beautiful city. And they also have amazing Indonesian food there. 
Yes. There's a lot of really great food that people don't expect there. So it's, uh, yes, very, very much recommend. And sometimes there's really great deals on flights from the East Coast, but it is definitely not a cheap place to travel to once you're there. So just be mindful. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so once the coronavirus is over, put that on your to-do list. (laughs) Great. Well, let's hop over the fence or to the other side of the desk, as you like to say, Casey, Mm -hmm. to what you did for just under two years when you worked at Mills College as an admissions counselor. Yeah. So I was admissions counselor there after having been a graduate of another women's college, Scripps, in Southern California. And my life at Mills was I should say, I know admissions counselors pretty much live and die by the admissions calendar cycle. So it tends to look pretty similar, which is that in the fall, you're doing recruitment travel to your territories. So my territories were the entirety of LA County, which is quite large, and then most of coastal California. So my time in the fall was spent going high school to high school. Usually you try and pack in for a day and then a college fair at night, and then you rinse repeat the next day for about two months. It's pretty grueling. And then application reading season starts. And that usually is from mid to late December through mid to late March. And then you're trying to recruit students to actually come in April. And then you kind of rest for a little bit. And it all starts over again as you plan your travel in July and August to hit the road in September. So that's kind of the pace of the work. Wow. Oh my gosh. But it sounds like just as professors and teachers for K through 12 get time off in the summer, that an admissions counselor might as well. They unfortunately do not. So I will say if people are interested in the profession, that's one thing to be mindful of is you are a staff member on campus during the summer. And that's when you're planning your recruitment travel. It is a lighter time, certainly, but you're planning recruitment travel and kind of reassessing what worked, what didn't, where you want to travel and kind of getting things ready. So it's certainly not as busy as the other times, but you are expected to be on campus and working. All right. Fair enough. Thanks for clarifying. Casey, I would like to flash back now to when you were in college. I know you got your BA in American Studies from Scripps College in Claremont, California. Did you know what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated? And what was your first job out of school? And how did you get it? Hmm. So absolutely not. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I I think I assume most folks are in the same boat. I originally had thought I wanted to be a historian, lucrative and thrilling profession. I wanted to be an American historian, but I did a couple of fellowships and worked in a few archives and decided archival life as much as it was fun in moments was not for me. And I had been in touch for a long time with my dear mentor and friend who's the director of admissions still at Scripps. And she started to point me in the direction of doing admission work post-graduation. And so I talked with both her and my own high school counselor who I had worked with at my school. And they put in a good word for me at Mills, which is where I got my first job. I had worked in a few nonprofits before, but that was really my first step into the profession. Okay. So how did you end up as an admissions counselor and why did you decide to move to the other side of the business to helping high school students navigate the application process? Yeah. You know, I was originally drawn to working at Mills because I was able to be in the Bay Area, which is where I wanted to be, and work at a women's college, which 
I wanted to scream from the rafters was an awesome experience and choice for students in high school. And I loved being able to be on the road talking to high school students about that. So that was really, really compelling for me. And I decided to go to the other side for the same reason a lot of folks make the switch, which is that there's, you know, I mentioned the cycle of recruitment that admission counselors are under. And I think there are some people who really relish the fact that you get through the cycle and you move on to the next. But I really wanted to get to know the students that I was meeting at these high schools and talk to them for more than those 10 minutes that one day in September. And I really wanted to get to know their paths and help them for longer. So I started thinking about college counseling. And that was right around that moment I was doing a presentation at a conference and my colleague at CollegeWise heckled me and the rest is history. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? So you were already beginning to make that shift in your brain. Yep, absolutely. And it just all kind of lined up. So I was considering working in a school. My mom's still an administrator. My dad was a teacher. I lived and grew up at a school. Schools are in my blood. I thought I would always work in a school setting. So it kind of caught me by surprise, but I'm really glad it did because there's a lot of freedom and creativity that comes for working for a company like us that I know I wouldn't always have necessarily in a school setting. So something else that I think was a bit of a surprise for you, Casey, was the fact that you started out your Mm -hmm. college experience at a different institution. Mm -hmm. You started at the University of Pennsylvania, where you were also studying, I think, Mm -hmm. American studies, but you transferred to Mm -hmm. Scripps. Can you tell us what happened? Absolutely. I grew up in the Bay Area and have gone to the same school all my life as a staff kid with my parents working there. And just like pretty much most teenagers at that juncture, wanted something different. I wanted pretty much the most extreme different I could think of. And of the schools that I was admitted to and was considering, Penn just felt the most different. It was urban. It was on the other coast. Now I will say my best friend from growing up was also going there. So that was certainly an influence. And so I I landed there. But I think I quickly saw it wasn't the best fit for me for a lot of reasons. I think I really wanted that in my mind, traditional college experience, which in my mind was sitting under a tree, holding hands, reading literature, waxing poetic about philosophy, you know, a small liberal arts experience. And Penn, I think, has some of those traditional rah-rah components with Greek life and sporting events. And that wasn't the thing that I necessarily needed. And that was all happening concurrent to my dad was diagnosed with metastasized cancer. And I decided I wanted to transfer and be closer to home. So Scripps really checked a lot of boxes for me. And so I was able to transfer there for my sophomore year and just fell in love with the experience and women's colleges and the women that I met there. So it was truly one of the best choices I've made. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Casey. Yeah. You mentioned a time in your personal life when you struggled, no doubt when your father was so ill, that Mm -hmm. must have been an incredibly challenging time for you and for Mm -hmm. your mother and your family. Mm -hmm. Could you share a time in your professional life when you really struggled? Maybe you failed at something or Mm -hmm. had a terrible boss or unpleasant (laughs) colleagues, whatever it was. How did you persevere? And was Mm -hmm. there a lesson that you may have learned in the process? I think everybody's had their mixture of personal, professional mishaps. And I think being vulnerable and being honest about them hopefully helps, especially other young women realize that it's certainly not a hindrance to finding your path. I think for me, probably one of my bigger struggles 
in the last few years was when I first stepped into this role. It was a new role. It was kind of created because we were growing and we needed somebody to sit in this seat. And we talked about in this profession, a lot of imposter syndrome. I had a lot of imposter syndrome. I felt really young. I felt inexperienced. I felt totally new. I had managed, but not at this scale before. And I was really nervous. And I think in the first few months, I had a few missteps with our leadership team of, I think, coming off too bold, too excited, too ready to jump in with solutions and probably didn't take a pause enough to really listen and get comfortable and sit back in this new role. And it heightened some of those insecurities I already had. And I think I really remember having a moment with another woman in our company who has a leadership role who I really admired. And I ended up talking to her at our annual retreat one-to-one after I had had a couple of missteps and apologized and just had a very vulnerable, open conversation. And it was really powerful because she really appreciated that, but she also made me feel like I could do this. And I think I needed to feel a little bit of that lift and a little bit of a reminder that we've all been there. And it didn't mean that I, was, I wasn't I was going to keep this job. <laughs> and I think that guidance from another woman in our company who has been very very successful was just reassuring to know it was going to be okay. Wow, Casey, you are such a badass. Let me tell you, (laughs) that takes so much courage to share a story like that at your age, which is very young, Mm -hmm. to have that level of Mm self-awareness and courage to come Mm -hmm. out and say, yeah, I experienced imposter syndrome. And P.S., the term imposter phenomena Mm. was introduced a little over 40 years ago in an Mm. article that was written by two women entitled The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women, Mm. Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. In other Mm. words, the imposter syndrome was named because of women like you, Casey, who's obviously very bright, incredibly talented, gifted, used to knocking it out of the park, putting in those extra hours, doing all of that. And it happens to so many women. And hello, I've experienced it Mm -hmm. many, many times. And I hope that our young listeners, especially the young women Mm -hmm. who are listening to this, who go out into the professional world, will take comfort in this. Mm -hmm. It is natural to feel like, especially when your supervisors Mm -hmm. see in you the Mm -hmm. talents and the gifts that you have, and then challenge you to take on more responsibilities, you are most likely going to feel imposter syndrome. Absolutely. But it's all good. It's It's all all good. good. Yep. And I do think that especially for, you know, I've mentioned being a remote company, I think in the digital age, we are all usually our best selves on the internet, or we try to be, right? It's obviously very well known that we live our best lives on our Instagram profiles or our Facebook pages. And I think sometimes we forget that can happen remotely 
in work. And I think sometimes the messiness of day-to-day life doesn't show up as much in work settings when you're remote. And I think it's important for women to sometimes make that more visible to say, I struggled today, or I really didn't do a great job today. And to help each other and normalize the fact that it's not all perfect days. And I certainly don't have it together all the days. (laughs) I think I always want to make sure that's visible to the people I work with too. Yes. And this is what life is all about. I mean, right now we're experiencing that. Mm -hmm. All of us are to a very real and profound degree with the coronavirus. We are all affected by this, whether it is depressing, anxiety provoking, loneliness provoking Mm -hmm. as well. The fact that people are cut off from their friends, Mm -hmm. from their loved ones. You know, you may have your nuclear family there, but you are isolated nonetheless. We go through ups and downs in our personal lives and in our professional lives, and it's natural and reach out for help. Don't feel that you have to carry this burden silently. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think and I hope that most employers right now, we're talking about it a lot, that parents and caretakers right now are really, really struggling doing two jobs at once, particularly our parents of young kids. And I'm hopeful that employers and managers are recognizing that, that people can show up to their paid job in varying ways based on the privileges and experiences they're having right now at home. So I'm hopeful that that's bringing that into conversation a little bit more right now. Yes, for sure. Okay, final T for C question, Casey. Mm-hmm. If you could go back to college, back to scripts, and do mm-hmm. it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what mm-hmm. advice would you give yourself? Obviously, I think about this one a lot, both because of my job, dealing with college choices all the time. And because I was a transfer student, I got to do college twice in two different places. So the revisionist history, I think about a lot. I think the honest answer is I truly wouldn't change a thing. But I think the piece I would reassure my college age self about is the fact that it's okay that your college experience is going to look different than you thought it was. I transferred. I didn't see that coming. My dad was very sick for all of college. And I shared caretaking duties with my mom. I'm an only child. I graduated early so that I could kind of shift to take care of him. I didn't have all the leadership roles and and clubs and activities. I played basketball and dance and did all the things in high school. And my college experience was much smaller and and quieter and removed. And I had a core group of people. But that was because I was dealing with grief. I lost my dad in my senior year. And Scripps was the best place for me to be. And I'm so grateful for the journey that I had there. And it looked nothing like I expected it to. So I think giving myself permission in those moments to say, it's okay, it's going to look different. And it's still exactly where you should be. That's probably the thing I would want to impart to 20 year old me. If you want to learn how to break into this field, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Casey's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Casey, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. You are really such a put together, (laughs) even in messiness that we all have in our daily lives, young woman, and obviously such an incredible mentor for the young women at College Wise and for our young listeners. Thank you so much 
for your honesty, for your wisdom, and for the work that you are doing to help young people find the right fit in a college setting that will give them the tools and the experiences that they need so that they're equipped to go out into the world and make their contribution. And I also hope you and your husband and your mom and the rest of your family stay healthy during this coronavirus. Thank you. I really enjoyed being here and I wish you well with both the construction and the virus and all of the times that we're going through right now. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.